Good morning, everyone. My name is Adam. I'm the associate pastor here at Antioch, and I have the privilege of opening up our summer series. This whole summer, we're going to be going through the book of John. We have a series called Life in His Name, and if you have not read the book of John, it's a good one. So we will not waste your time. It'll be worthwhile. Um, and we're just going to kind of day, uh, week by week go through looking at Jesus and growing understanding not just of who he is, but what he's done and who he's called us to be. Um, just to, to explain a little bit, the book of John, the John is in the New Testament. The Bible is made up of Old and New Testament. There's 39 books in the Old, 27 in the New. The first four books of the New Testament is, are the Gospels. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The thing that's interesting about John is it actually it, it seems to be quite different. It seems to separate itself or diverge away from how the other three are set up. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are more factual. They're more historical in, in, in their narrative. They, this is the origin of Jesus and his lineage and then this and this and this. It's kind of chronological. And, and John makes what appears to be the assumption that you've already heard or know some level of some of those stories because he does not jump right in at like the birth of Jesus. And when he talks about the same stories, he goes after more of like the heart motives. He talks more about the theology. He, he, he's more philosophical in approach to what he's explaining. And so what I'm excited about is how fun it is, not only when you learn about some fact about something, but you learn why something did what it did. Right? Isn't that always fun when you're like, oh, that's the heart motive behind that. That's what's going on. Or that's what that means to me or that's what it should mean for me. And that's what John is after. And this is written by the Apostle John. That's why it's the Gospel of John. There's a dude named John. He actually self-titled, calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. So he's like, you know, all you jokers, you know, he kind of likes you, but he loves me a lot. And he like wants everybody to know about it enough to where it's permanently in the Bible forever. Um, and so that is who John is. He, he wrote this. Um, he is an eyewitness of Jesus. So this isn't like secondhand telephone game communication of what happened. He was there with the Lord. He saw him. He was with him. He was a friend. He was, he was intimate and close with him. And so now this is written between 50 and 85 AD. So this is still within his lifetime. He's writing this after saying, this is what I've experienced. This is what I've saw in Jesus. His audience is both Jew and Gentile. And so for the Jewish people, he, he speaks in a way that resonates with the audience. But then Gentile people, he, he speaks in a way that resonates with the audience. So even now, as I'm communicating to a room full of very different people, John makes it where he says, I want to connect. The Bible is relevant. The scripture, the truth of Jesus is relevant to all people at any point at any time. And so that's what he's saying in the way that he wrote his style. We'll, we'll look and dive in a little bit into some of this. And this morning, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles, we'll be in John chapter 1. But the crux of the whole book of John he actually tells us why he wrote it. So this is a bit of a spoiler alert. This is like going to the end of the movie and watching the last five minutes or going to the last chapter of a book and reading it first, which I would never want to do, but we're going to do it anyway. And this is what he says in John 20, verse 31. He says, For I've written these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing in him, you might have life in his name. So if you're like, well, why did John even write this book? Like, what's the whole purpose? It's to create belief. It's to, that's why he goes more the theological or the philosophical or the, the heart level of which the mind and the heart engagement level with how he writes his book is because he wants the fruit of it to be that you come alive in God. He doesn't want you just to be informed about God. You know, like the, the worst thing that could happen this morning is that you guys gain a whole bunch of information about the book of John, but you leave no change, not change at all. 
Like the idea is that we come alive as we, as we behold God, as we see him, as we see his word, as we absorb it into our lives, it actually transforms us that we leave changed people. And that is very much the, the intention of John here. And so we're going to read this morning, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. We're going to read it together. Here we go. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was the life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was, the, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. So John, right out of the gate, he doesn't say, you know, in Bethlehem, there was a woman named Mary, pregnant, right? Like, he, he doesn't start there. He jumps right into some seriously thick, heavy theology. Like, if we had five years, we could, like, spend the first year just on John chapter 1. Like, this is some serious stuff. And what I found is that John seems to like to go after some of the meaty stuff right up front. This is like, I mean, it's technically it's the prologue, but like in literature, it'd be like the prelude. Um, in orchestrated music, it's the overture. For the film people in the room, it's the trailer, you know? This is like the teaser. This is like, hey, just so you know, this summer, as you guys study John, God speaking to all of us, this is what you're about to get into, okay? We're going to address some of these big questions. And the reason why I love this book is because he actually goes after some big questions. We all have them. I have them. You have them. This is the human experience. Who is God? How do I know him? Who am I? What's my purpose? Like all of us, we, we're, we're riddled as human beings, made with wanting to have these, these God-sized only holes in our souls that only he can fill, questions. And so what I love about John is he doesn't turn a blind eye to him, but he actually addresses these things and he goes after it. And I don't know if, um, if any of you are parents in the room, but these kind of questions actually come up a lot within our home. I have three sons, and they're smart kids, and they ask really difficult questions that I try to avoid because I'm like, I don't know, you know? I'm, I'm just a dude, you know? So, but, but like, it usually goes something to the fact, usually they're around four or five, maybe six when they start to happen. But at some point, you know, my, my little, my, one of my little dudes will be like, you know, where, where did God come from? And I'm like, he didn't come from anything. He's always been there. You know, like, who created him? No, no one, cre oh, geez, you know, like, you know, you know like, no one, cre no one created him. He, he, he's always been there. Why? And then they, 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 I would hope they would just go away, but they stay in front of me because they live in my home. And then they'll say something like, but how did he get to be the way that, that he was? And then I'm like, you know, very clearly and articulately saying, he has always been the way that he was and he is still and will be forever, you know, which tells them nothing. You know, they're like, what? I'm like, that's what it means to be God, you know? It's like the I told you so Trump card for parents or something, you know? You're like, ah. Oh. 
But this is, this is the, the conversations that we have because all of us have these questions. All of, these have, all of us have these groanings in our soul. And God is not one who avoids them. He actually wants to answer your big questions. Isn't that comforting? I'm not claiming that when you leave here, you'll have every question answered. So don't shoot me if that happens, okay? Like, or it doesn't happen. Like, I don't know. But what I am saying is that God has the answers to our questions, big or small, something that our brain can fully comprehend or not. He holds all wisdom, and he has them available to us, and he's not trying to elude us like sometimes it feels. For my oldest, my nine-year-old, Elias, he's very intelligent, and he's very like, intellectual. He likes to reason and think through things. And so a big part of Shelly and I's process in trying to parent them, and who knows if we've done this right, and I'm being very sincere, it's been a journey of asking God to help us as parents. But we've made an effort to say, hey, buddy, like, don't say that you're a Christian. Don't say that you follow Jesus just because your dad is a pastor. I don't know about any of you all, but I grew up thinking that pastor's kids were jacked up. And I was afraid to be a pastor because I thought, I'm going to have jacked up kids. <laughs> so if you're a pastor's kid in this room, you're probably jacked up. And I'm sorry. You know, but I was, I was, like, I was, like, I was just afraid that like, the, the religious pressure of being associated with a church and being associated with a, a man of God or a family of God or whatever. And I'm like, we're just like people like everybody else, just trying to learn to follow and love Jesus with our whole heart and life and soul and mind. Like we're in the journey as much as anybody else, right? And so I've always, so we, we've sat down with Elias many times saying, buddy, like don't just say you're a Christian because you feel pressure from daddy or the church or whatever. Like I want you to have an experience where you, where you have an experience with God that for you it's undeniable that Jesus is the Lord. And then you choose in your own process to say, I want to follow God. But I don't want it to be that you make it feel like it's up to daddy to make that decision for you. So, you know, one reason it made us nervous is he was like, he owned it. So he'd be like, he'd be talking about church or he'd talk about the Bible or whatever and be like, not that I fully believe yet. Like he'd always, <laughs> just want to clarify, don't think for a moment I made a decision that I haven't made yet. Still have some big questions, dad. And he, and he did, he had big questions. Like, you know, the whole who created God thing, like God's never been created. Like, right, like hard for the brain to comprehend. The whole space and time thing, major conversation. Like, okay, you're telling me God is everywhere? Yeah, he's, he's, he can minister right now to every heart and soul and mind of every person on the planet right now at the same time. And he can do it at any time? Yes, he can do that 2,000 years ago, now, and in the future all at the same time. There's no restrictions to God. He's not just ministering to everyone who's alive right now. He's ministering to every person that's ever breathed breath ever at right now at this moment. Isn't that, Right? And he wants to understand that before believing in Jesus. I'm like, good luck. You know, like, <laughs> this is crazy, you know? And then hell, I mean, who's had questions about hell in the room? Am I the only one, right? You're like, oh, it's a hard topic, you know? And he's like, so hell's a real place? Yeah, the Bible teaches it's a real place. And that's for the devil and his demons? Yeah, it really is. But people can go there if they choose to not receive Jesus and they reject God? Yeah, that's the, that's the consequence, buddy. Dad, that's hard, buddy, I know. I know. So he has all these questions, and it's, I mean, it's keeping him up at night. Like, we're having moments where we're, like, laying in bed, and he's like, Dad, don't leave yet. Like, can, can you lay on the bed with me a little longer? I just need to process this question. You're like, yeah, okay, buddy, I'll try, you know? And you're just like, oh, right? Well, a couple weeks ago, we had um, Joe Ewan in town. I don't know if you remember him. On the, he came in on Sunday morning, but he led a prayer and prophecy night on the following Monday night, which is just 
Basically, he taught out of 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 about how prophecy is encouragement. It's edifying. It's when you encourage people uh, through prayer and through hearing God and saying, God wants to encourage you. And so he was trying to activate us to get comfortable with it. And so there was, there was a game that he played where he said, okay, if you want to encourage someone, come line up. So people lined up and he said, what I want you to do is close your eyes and then I'm going to have somebody come up and they're going to put their hand on your shoulder, but you're not allowed to open your eyes. So you don't know if it's a guy or a girl, young or old or whatever. And I just want you to ask God, God, how do you want to encourage this person? And the thing that comes to your mind that's encouraging, just tell them, hey, I pray that you'd be encouraged that God loves you and that he cares about you, whatever. And so we get here late that night, which makes me really frustrated because I'm supposed to be a good example to y'all. And uh, <laughs> good luck. And so uh, we're, we're late as a family and I'm having a bad attitude. And they're already started the thing. And so my family and I sit in the very back center row and we're sitting there, and all of a sudden, Joe's, like, making us get up and move around the room. So I'm like, okay, we got to participate. And we hadn't had dinner yet, and it's, like, 8 o'clock. And I'm going, okay, the kids hadn't eaten dinner. They're normally going to go to bed now, and we're here. Okay, we'll just trust God for this one. Um, and so about 15 minutes in, though, we're moving around, doing things, and my kids are staying in the back. Well, all of a sudden, I turn around, and, and I look, and my son Elias is over here, and his eyes are closed, and his hands is raised, and he's just beaming. And I'm like, what is, what is he doing, you know? And, and he's raising his hand because he wants to pray for somebody. And then I'm going, oh my gosh, is this heretical? Like, he doesn't even believe in Jesus. Like, can he pray for people? Like, like what are the rules on this, you know? Does anybody have like a guide? I don't, I don't know what we're doing. And so I'm like, okay. And so I'm like, all right, well, we'll just kind of wing it and see what happens, you know? And so I see someone go over to him and this woman's pray, getting prayed for and, he, and he's saying something to her. I'm like, oh man, what is he saying, you know? And all of a sudden she's weeping. I'm like, oh no, what is he saying, you know? <laughs> and she's like being dealt with by God. God is meeting with this woman with my nine-year-old praying over him. It's amazing. And so then, you know, he, she walks away and then all of a sudden he just puts his hand right back up. And then another buddy of mine comes over and he goes over and puts his hand on, on Elias, and Elias says something to him, and he's going, like, responding, like, how did you know that? And I'm going, oh, gosh, what does he say? So he comes over, and he goes, dude, you wouldn't believe what he just said to me. And I'm like, well, what did he say? He's like, he had this word, and he was sharing this word about the time is now, and da-da-da, and he's like, I got that same word yesterday from a friend of mine. Like, God is speaking through your son. I'm like, no way. Like, that's so cool. And so the night goes on, and even when it's time to leave, it's like 9.15 or something, and we hadn't had dinner, and don't judge us. We went to McDonald's, because it's quick and cheap, and we prayed that it would bless our body and nourish it and all that stuff, right? <laughs> you say those prayers too. You know you do. And so we're at home and we're sitting at the island of our kitchen and we're all together and it's like 9.30 at night now and Elias is just glowing. And I say, buddy, like Shelly and I are like, buddy, like what happened tonight? Like I saw you were participating. Like tell us what was going on. He's like, tonight was amazing. I'm like, what was amazing about it? He's like, well, I was sitting back there and, you know, and then they, they invited us to start to pray for people. And it's like, it was like I could hear God. It was like I knew how God wanted to encourage people. Well, how'd you know that? I don't know. I just could. So then I started doing it. And it was encouraging to me. As I was encouraging people, it was so amazing. I'm like, buddy, that's so awesome. I'm like, I, I, this is really great for your process and choosing to want to follow Jesus. He's like, no, I believe in Jesus. And, I mean, waterworks, right? Like, we're, like, crying at the island, like, what? He's like, yeah. He's like, towards the end of the night, I went and sat in the back and I was thinking to myself, I'm like, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing? Yeah, I have lots of big questions, but I believe. Yeah, I believe. He goes, and, and then he like basically, 
walks himself through. My nine-year-old does like the Romans road, if any church people background know what that is. But he's like, I'm a sinner saved by grace. And he's like teaching us how to come to know Jesus. And then he's like, yeah. And I just said, God, I want you to fill my heart and I want you to take over and I want to live for you. And so we're just like losing it at the kitchen table, right? You're just going, what? And then this is the best part. Then his eyes fill with tears, our sweet little boy. And he goes, dad, I, I used to be so afraid of all my big questions. And he's like, and I don't even have the answers to him yet. He's like, but you know what? I'm not afraid anymore. You guys have come in this room, many of you, with really big and serious and legitimate questions. But you've also come in with this baggage of fear. This baggage of the I don't know and the reasons why I can't and just the internal warfare. And God wants to remove the fear today. He wants to set you free that you don't have to be afraid to put your trust in Jesus. He has what you need. He wants to meet you right where you are, and he's going to reveal it to us this morning through John 1. And we're just going to go verse by verse, and we're just going to talk about what it says. But I'm asking you to say, then what does that mean to me and how I believe and trust God? What does it like for me to address my big questions as I see these truths and claims of who Jesus is? Does that sound good? All right, let's open up John 1. Starting just verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Does that sound familiar to anybody, that language? Especially the first part of it? In the beginning, anybody heard that somewhere else in Scripture? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, right? So right there, Boom. John is on purpose. This is not an accident. It wasn't like, oh, that's so cute. It kind of matched. Like, like he, he on purpose wanted to create a parallel because there's some revelation about who Jesus is and how he shows up in the scene about who Jesus has always been, even back in the beginning. And he wants you to see that there's a relationship here, a parallel between the creation story from the beginning and the new creation story of what Jesus is about to do on earth. Okay? So in the beginning was the word. There's a couple things I just want to point out from this verse. First of all is the word was already there in the beginning. So this is one of those like hurt your head thoughts, right? The beginning of what? The beginning of everything. What was before the beginning? Nothing. He just was always there. And who was there? The word. So this word is proper noun W, capital W. It's speaking. It's giving a name, we'll find out later, of Jesus. And it's calling him the word. And it's saying that he's always been there. I don't know about you, but sometimes I have this thought like, God's always been there, the Father, and then he needed a Savior, so he created a Son later down the road. But what we're learning quickly is, no, he didn't. The Son has always been there. He's equal God. Always been from the beginning. And the word was with God, that second part of that verse, and I want to draw attention to that because it shows that it's not just God the Father because he was with him. So we see that there's two persons so that starts to speak, and, and we'll get to this further, but this is starting to give a nuance towards the Trinity. And so, because that's a whole big question that we have, like, who's God? Well, he's, he's trying, three persons in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you're like, uh, my brain already hurts. Like, how do you even comprehend that, right? But this is where he starts. He says, like, like his heavenly Father, Jesus is revealed as eternal. Right out of the gate. And he is with God, and he is God. But real quick, I just want to break down the word Word, when it calls him the Word. In the beginning was the Word. 
This is a very popular thing to study among theologians. You'll find tons of literature on it because this is, um, it's a very loaded name to call him the word. And I believe John did this very intentionally, again, to try to reach all audiences that would hear it. Because for the Jewish people in the audience reading this or hearing this, they would say, oh, the word of God. That actually would be familiar title that they would give God. So Old Testament, like Jewish culture for generations, sometimes they would refer to God as the word of God. Because so often they would hear God through prophets and they would hear the word of God and it would lead them as they would follow God. And it was this understanding that the word of God was God and he's leading them. Does that make sense? But at the same time, this would, re- this would resonate with the ancient Greek listener because the word, the word word is logos and that word is something that, that was, it's a Greek word and it's familiar to their culture and to their understanding. And they actually had a, a very sophisticated understanding of the word uh, logos and what it would mean is it was like this, this, this intangible yet supernatural being that created all things and held it all and managed it all together. That was what the word logos meant for them. So they didn't have a name for God. They didn't have like this, like they didn't believe in Jesus at this point, right? But what they did say is like, hey, we're, we, we kind of have this like loaded word called logos. And it just kind of means like there's this intelligent designer, And this intelligent designer, he created all things and he kind of manages all things, but we really don't really understand him. But we just kind of, it's the bucket we throw all things into that we don't understand. It must be the logos. Does that make sense? So when John uses this thing, this word, when he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word is God, like he is connecting all listeners together saying, hey, I'm talking about this one who was in the beginning. There is a God. He is a person and he's created all things and we're all on the same page. That's what he's doing right out of the gate. He's bringing us all together. And what this tells us, this is a pretty big statement, but this is what this tells us, even in this first verse, is that if a person doesn't know the word, doesn't know Jesus, which we later find out that's who it's referring to, then they don't know God. And that truth applied to the listeners at that moment, and that's what they were learning as they were hearing it. Oh, you don't know the word, then you don't know God. But that also applies to those today. For us in this room, if you don't know Jesus, then you don't know God. But if you know Jesus, then you know God. I remember my dad sharing his testimony. I've, I've heard it a thousand times. He has a pretty radical story. And um, he went through this pretty significant trial and, 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 and painful season of life when he was in his early 30s. And he made a list of who could help him. He had these big questions, right? What do I do? I'm stuck. I'm in this problem. I, have, I need this answer to this problem. I need grace. I need hope. I need, I need something. And he, he made a list of all who could help him. And he quickly went through the list and realized that no one could help him. He called every, it was over 20 people long, called all of them. No one could help him. He's like, you're on your own, dude. And so then my grandparents, who went to this Episcopalian church, was like, well, maybe, you know, Father Buffington can help you. That was their priest. And my dad was like, I don't know what he's going to do for me, but sure, why not? You know, let's give it a go. And so my dad went and met with Carl Buffington, uh, Father Buffington, and he sat down with him and, and, you know, my dad pours out his heart. This is the problem. This is the trial I'm going through. And I've asked everybody and I'm just totally screwed. And then Carl had the nerve. He was like, he's like, you know, Randy, that's important. Like those are, those are legitimate problems that you have in life and those are real trials. And, you know, but those are kind of secondary. You have, you have a bigger problem. And my dad was like, who are you to say that to me? 
Could you imagine, think of like the hardest thing you're going through in life right now. Some of them are like, we can't even comprehend, right? Some of you have real problems. And could you imagine someone going up to you and be like, yeah, that's important, but that's like secondary. You have actually a bigger issue. You'd be like, what could be bigger than this, right? And my dad's like, what are you talking about? And he goes, no, let me ask you this question. He goes, Randy, what's your relationship like with Jesus? And my dad sat there and thought about it for a moment. And he goes, I don't know. And then Carl said, if you don't know, then you don't have one. For some of us in this room, if you don't know where you stand with Jesus, it's like where your relationship is. If, you, if you're not sure, certain that you know him, then you don't. Like that's what that adds up to be. But what I want to tell you today is that God is a God who reveals himself and is drawing close to you. He wants to know you and he wants you to know him and he's made himself available. And he wants to remove the question mark of who is God and how do I know him? It's through Jesus. If you know Jesus, you know God. He wants to nail that down for you in your soul today. And we talked about this last week. Travis mentioned it. He's like, you don't want to let, leave eternity, the, what happens for eternity up to, I hope I'm a good person, or I think God's kind of like this somewhere out there. He, no, we want to have an intimate, personal relationship with the God of the universe, the creator God, the logos, the one who created all things from the beginning. God wants to reveal himself to you in that way today. Picking up in verse two, gets a bit redundant. We can blame John for that. He says, he was with God in the beginning. And the reason why I wanna just draw attention to this one verse really quickly is that there is still this distinction that the word Jesus and God the Father are separate and that Jesus is not a created being. That's the biggest thing I want to just draw attention to. Like, we need to have good theology about this. Jesus is not a created being. He is the creator being. He is from the beginning. He is God, the creator. He was not created by the Father. And so we want to read, and just to hit on the Trinity again, there's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are not tritheists, meaning we don't believe that there are three separate gods that we worship. There is one God with three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I don't have the time to fully unpack a whole Trinity teaching, but it's spelled out throughout scripture, okay? And we can talk more about it later if you'd like. But this is who God is revealing himself to be in John 1, 2. Then picking up in John 1, 3. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Does that not fumble all over your words when you read that? Am I the only? Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Again, this is that Genesis 1 parallel of how God created things in the beginning, and it was Jesus that was the creator that did it. That, that was his role because everything was made through him, through the word. And Jesus is the word. Isn't that crazy? Because I would get the concept in my mind of I always think of Jesus as the dude on the cross. I'm kind of giving him this credit for like New Testament God. But no, he's all Testament. He's always been, right? And so he's this creator God from the beginning. And so this is where it's speaking to it again. And it's saying that just like in the New Testament, in the very beginning of time, when, when God created all things, it was done through Jesus. It's showing you again that God is creating a new thing through Jesus again. So there's this parallel. This is super beautiful. I want you to get this. The same way that he made all things in the beginning, what we know is that sin came in and compromised the original creation. Sin polluted and distorted. And if you don't know this, like every one of us, all people of are, are, are sinful. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We all need redemption. We all need grace. We all need a savior. Because we have sinned and fallen short, we've rejected God at some level within our lives. We all do it many times a day. We're more sinful, just to be quite blunt, than we realize. 
I mean, that's really the state. But there's a creator God who shows up again in the New Testament through the word, through Jesus, and he is creating a new creation. This is like the beautiful message of the gospel. This is what makes it so exciting and why we should spend time talking about it. And Paul, specifically in the New Testament, loves this. This is the thread and the theme throughout most of his letters, is this idea of new creation. He writes it in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the old sinful enslaved creation is gone, the tainted creation that was made already, and there is a new creation, and it is here, right? This is what... This is what John is alluding to in this passage. This is some crazy deep theology that he wants us to grasp, that if you put your faith in Jesus, you are not your old self anymore. Listen to me, you, if you love Jesus and he lives within your heart, you are not a sinner who sometimes does things right. That is bad theology. You hear me? You are a saint, you are a deemed one. When the father sees you, he sees the son, white, spotless, perfected, because he sees the work of the cross that Jesus did for your sins, he sees it fully done. Even if you sinned five seconds ago and you're going to sin five minutes from now later, right? When he sees you, he sees the redemption of Jesus on the cross. And you are now a saint who sometimes chooses to act in the old creation. But you are a new creation and there needs to be a shift in the way that you believe about yourself because if you think wrong, you're going to live wrong. You have to realize this. Like if you think wrong and you're just like, I'm just, I'm just a failure, I'm just a mess up, I'm just a sinful... No, if you've accepted Jesus, God, there's hope for me. There's a grace for me to live free. I'm a new creation in you. You need to start to talk to yourself. You're crazy if you don't talk to yourself, okay? You need to start telling yourself good theology because if you believe bad theology, it's gonna lead you the wrong way. And this is so powerful what, John is, or what Paul specifically is saying here in 2 Corinthians. And then he, Paul says this throughout multiple times. There's a time in Acts 17 where he is with, uh, in Athens, in the city of Athens, and he's before all these like super smart people. So it's like the, the Aristotles and Socrates of the day. And he's at this meeting called the Areopagus. And he gathers them all together and they're debating and discussing like who is God and all these deep things. And even there, Paul throws in this new creation idea and he says, for in him, speaking of Jesus, we live and move and have our being. So the same way that Jesus created all things in the beginning as new creation, as one who, if you accepted Jesus, now you live and move and have your being through the power of his work. He has spoken again a new creative story for your life. Does this make sense? You follow me? This is so important for us to get. And he says, as some of your own poets have said, he even uses references in their own culture, and he says, we are his offspring. So he's speaking of us becoming children of God because of what Jesus has done. Now in John 1.4, it says, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. So first we know Jesus as the word, but now we know Jesus as both light and life. What I want to draw attention to specifically is that he's not comprised of some light and some life that make him a whole. He is fully life, and he is fully light. Another one of those big question brain hurt moments, because I think of things usually as like a cup. And I'm like, oh, he's like love and goodness and, you know, 20% that, 20% that, and it makes up a whole. But somehow in God and his nature, he is 100% the word. He's 100% light. He's 100% life. The Bible says he's not just loving, but he's 100% love. He is the very definition of it. He is our grace. He is glory. He is goodness, right? And he's not waning in any of these categories. 
But he is fully all these things all at one time, and yet he doesn't contradict himself. Isn't that amazing? Our God is much bigger than we give him credit for. And he's much better than we give him credit for. So what that tells us is Jesus is the life and light of all mankind. What this tells us is if a person doesn't know Jesus, doesn't know the logos, doesn't know the word, doesn't know Jesus, then there's a sense that they are both dead and in darkness. This is the spiritual state of those who don't know Jesus. Isn't this sobering? I'm going to say it again. If a person doesn't know Jesus, what this tells us is they're both dead and in darkness. Because to know Jesus is to know life and light. So it just it, it provokes me to ask the question in this room, who feels dead inside? Where do you feel like you're bankrupt on the inside completely? Or where do you feel like you've been totally consumed by darkness? It has surrounded you, it's overcome you, and you don't even know where to begin. May I plead with you today, listen, give conscious attention to Jesus right now. Focus your heart and your mind. Think about him because he is life and he is light and he does overcome darkness. We know this because the next verse tells us, it says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So let's behold him because as we behold him, the Bible talks about how we like look in a mirror and as we look in a mirror, it, trans it transforms us and we become in the likeness of God. So as we behold him, we become like him, right? And we get transformed ourselves as we behold Jesus and his victories become our victories. And those places of shame and darkness and, and depression and confusion, his light can eradicate the darkness. You don't have to live with it and God wants to invade that space in our lives where we we're too complacent with having it stick around. I even love the fact that this still is paralleling with the Genesis story because in the Genesis story it says, let there be light and there was light. And then all of a sudden Jesus shows up on the earth and there was light, right? He can't help himself but be himself. You know, in, the he in, in heaven, the Bible says there is no sun because his face radiates glory so bright that he is the light of heaven. It's who he is. And God wants to shine in the darkest places of our struggles. He loves to do it. And there's a corner that we turn here with what John is talking about in verse 6. It says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. So here we're introduced to another person. First we have the person of the word, Jesus, but now we have one who bears witness to the word, John. This man is not John the author of this book, John the Apostle John. This is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist actually was prophesied of in Old Testament. So again, him, you gotta sometimes stop and think, who is the audience? Who is he writing to? So you have a bunch of people who, who a lot of them are familiar with like Old Testament prophecy. They know the Torah, they've heard different things spoken over generations. And so they know that there's, a lot of them know of a Messiah that should be coming at some point and that there's a man who's gonna come and bear witness. Well, so John here is drawing attention to that, that they connect the dots, that Jesus is that man who's the Messiah and John is that man who bears witness. One of the places of, of testifying uh, or prophesying of it was Malachi 3.1. It says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. So this is speaking of John the Baptist, the messenger shows up. And John the Baptist is radical because, and, and one reason why he's clarifying, I believe John the Apostle is clarifying this in this book, is because there was some confusion about John the Baptist maybe being the Messiah himself. 
Some people are like, oh, is this a Messiah? I mean, he's doing some pretty cool things. He's pretty radical. He's got a big following. And what does John the Baptist say? No, no, no. I'm unworthy to tie the sandals of the man I'm talking about. And the reason why that's such a big deal is culturally, when, when, when a, a master would come home, the lowest servant would untie the sandals of the master's feet and, wipe, and clean their feet. That was like a practice so they wouldn't dirty the house when they come home. But it's such a lowly position in the home that if you were a Jewish slave, even then, because you're Jewish, you didn't have to do it because it's beneath you. So John the Baptist, who is Jewish, is saying, I'm not even unworthy to, tie, to untie this guy's sandals. Like, this guy is so amazing compared to who I am. So he's making this massive, profound statement that people would resonate with, oh, like, there's another one coming. And here John is saying, Jesus is the one that was prophesied, and this is who John the Baptist was talking about. So he's connecting the dots to all the listeners of who he's writing to. And then after that comes what I would consider maybe be the, the three saddest verses in all of the book. So just want to submit that. It's really rough. It says in verse 9, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. It makes me think of the song, So Will I, that we sing by Hillsong. One of the most powerful verses in the song. I love the song. It's beautiful. But it says, On a hill you created, the light of the world abandoned in darkness to die. If you want to think about how good God is and how, what lengths he would go to show you that he loves you, meditate on the reality that he hung on a tree that he spoke into existence for you. He made the tool which he died on, knowing he was going to die on it so that he might redeem you. His very creation rebelled against him. Do you know that you're made in his image? Like, you need to know this, that you're fearfully and wonderfully made. If you're thinking anything less than I am made well, then you're believing a lie. And some people need to be free of that, self-hatred, self-condemnation. God wants to deliver you. He wants his light to shine in that dark place of your thoughts and mind. Because he goes to great lengths to even acknowledge that his own creation is rebelling against him, yet he says, I'll come anyway and I'll love you anyway. It says, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Another way of translating that word recognize, it also can equate to know him. Didn't know him. Like, no, I don't know him. I, I, it was rejecting him. The world rejected him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The way you could translate that verse is he came home and his family didn't even acknowledge him as part of the family. Like this language in this part of scripture is more intimate than it just reads at face value. So imagine the biggest betrayal, right? Whether it's an unfaithful spouse or a parent who abandons the kids, whatever the deepest wounds are, this is what Jesus is experiencing by his own creation. But what I love is that the story doesn't stop there, Right? We know that it doesn't. First of all, we know that God loves us anyway and he defeats sin and death. But second of all, we know that there's a remnant of those that believe. There are those, not everyone rejected Jesus. Some chose to believe. I pray that that would be reflected in this room today. But we pick this up in verse 12. It says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who did believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. This is the good news of the gospel. What this is speaking is that Jesus didn't come just to recreate things, but he came as an adopted father. And he says, I'm going to adopt sinful kids. 
I don't want the good, perfect ones. I want the jacked up ones. So going back to all you who's jacked up, congratulations. He's here for you. This is like where you get the, the, you know, there's a lot of cheesy sayings in church life, but it's like no perfect people allowed or whatever, you know? But like, this is the truth. Like God's saying, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. I came for those who are broken and need despair. They don't, they have all these big questions and they don't know how to answer them. I've come for those people. Not those who are independent and proud and think they got all the answers and they figured it all out, but those who are aware of their need, I've come to them so they might see me as their father and I will adopt them as my son and my daughter. This is what makes the gospel so dang good. It's because this is the heart of God. So what this tells us is that if you know Jesus, you know salvation. And the reason why I want to bring distinction to this is that it's not just good enough to know about God. It's not good enough just to be able to quote scripture. Tell me, you could probably, some of you in the room could tell me a whole lot more about John 1 than I could. But what you want to do is this, this idea of know that comes up where they didn't know him, it's an intimate word. It's a familiar intimacy language where it's saying, no, you, you are called to know God. This is like what I talk about with Elias where I'm saying, hey, don't just know theoretically about God because you're raised in the church. I want you to have an undeniable experience with him where no one can steal it from you. When life gets hard, you're like, but I know that he's real. When you don't have questions, you're like, but I know the person who has the answers. This is the kind of thing. God wants you to know salvation in Jesus. Not just a moment where you say, I recognize my need and save me for all my past, present, and future sins, but this invitation of relationship where you're like, now from this point forward, I'm going to walk in intimacy knowing God. This is what he wants from you. This is what he's asking of you, that we know God in this way. And it builds to this moment in John 1.14, which is like the climax of the whole passage, the whole chapter. And it says this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. I love this. The divine word, the logos, put on flesh. The, the listener of this, unless there's faith sparking in their heart, would be offended. Hold on. God became man? And he's like, yes. And by the way, it's the guy you killed. <laughs> he says that a little later. Right? But this is what he's getting to. Like, wow, God goes to, there's no length. Whatever you're facing, you say, but I'm the exception. It's a lie. There's no length that God will go to redeem you. There's no sin so great, no rebellion so big. He, he fights and contends for every breath that you might know him and know him intimately. And I even love this language that it uses here. It says he made his dwelling among us. This word dwelling, um, more accurately translated, actually means to pitch a tent among people. And again, John writing to his audience, they would have, this would have been super familiar, especially for the Jewish people. Because they're sitting there going, hold on, pitch a tent. That sounds familiar. Oh yeah, didn't God used to like reside in a tent among us as we traveled? Like, doesn't he like show up like inside like this tent somewhere? And what they're referring to is they're thinking back to the people of Israel and Exodus 33 and 34 and in Joshua. It shows up multiple times throughout scripture where they would travel as they were going through the wilderness in different places and they would pitch a tent. And then it says the presence of God would fill the tent. And he would lead them from that place, his manifest presence. So what this is telling us, the absurdity of what this is telling us is to know Jesus is to know God. So the same way that people would engage or in, um, have um, a face-to-face encounter with God through this dwelling of God, he's now saying the dwelling of God is in the person of Jesus. 
If you want to know God, you can dwell with him as you know Jesus. And then as a New Testament believers, what we know is that when we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, that, that, that tent, that tabernacle that Jesus resides in isn't just in the Holy of Holies in some temple. It's not some tent wandering through the desert. It now resides within the soul of every believer. This is the greatest part of the gospel. I don't have to take a step anywhere. I don't have to breathe a breath anywhere and feel alone anymore. Alone in my problems, alone in my questions, alone in my concerns, I have God dwelling within me, accessible to me. And this is what God is like pressing us right now. He's saying, do you not see that I draw close? This is what John 1.14 and the crux of the whole passage is saying, is that God has come close to you in Jesus. But I feel like sometimes the conversation is like, we've lost God, even for believers who love God go to church, Christians, all of us, maybe all of us could say this to some of but there's seasons in life where we're like, I just feel like God's like eluding me. He feels so far. But do you realize, even if that's the feeling, and I'm not demonizing the feeling, but it's bad theology. It's not true. I'm not saying that God doesn't want to heal you of that pain and that sense of feeling that you're having, but you at least need to start to change your thinking and recognize God is living and dwelling within you and that he's accessible to you. Because if you have bad thinking about who God is, you're going to continue to perpetuate that feeling. But you're like, no, I reject that. God, I thank you that you draw near. I thank you that the word put on flesh, that he draw close to me, and that he wants to meet me in my place of pain and concern. He wants to meet me right now. Do it, Jesus. Okay, am I good? Okay. I want to I share this picture that I had. As I was praying for us this week, I kept having this, this, this picture. And it was a picture of someone in their home and you, you walk in and it looks like a hoarder lives there. There's just piles of garbage everywhere, just stacks of things. And, and they're, they're, they, they look afraid, they look confused, they, they look concerned. And all these piles represent all their big questions, pains, and problems. And they're going, okay, and they, and they move this pile over here and maybe they cut this stack in half and move it over there. But all they're doing is just moving around garbage. And the crazy thing about this is as they're sitting there wandering around the, their house trying to answer their own problems, be their own solution, be the best you can be, whatever that, you know, good self-help stuff is, you need Jesus, what you need. But, you know, as they're trying to do all this and manage it absent of God's participation, the crazy thing is in the middle of the living room is this tent. And it's like a camper's tent in my mind as I'm praying and thinking about you guys. And this light is radiating from it. But every time you go from this pile to that pile, you kind of like put your hand up and you try to like walk carefully around the tent. And you're like, I don't, I don't. I, and there's like this sense of fear of like, what would happen if I actually exposed myself to God's wisdom? What would happen if I actually went to the way, the truth, and the life? Like he is truth. He has the answers to my, my problems. What would happen if I let that light shine in these dark places in my house? Oh, I feel scared. There's this sense of, of concern about what would happen if we actually let God be God within us. And what was blowing my mind was in this picture, it's for the believer, not for the non-believer, but Christians, we, we live sometimes as if we, we put the Holy Spirit back into the jail cell of our soul. And we're like, I, I, I love that you live there, but just don't do anything. <laughs> like, don't stir the pot, Holy Spirit, you know? And God's like, no, like you locking me away, not allowing me access to your questions is hurting you. And you're just sitting there moving garbage from one place to the next and trying to, you know, self-manage. And I didn't die on a cross so you could sin-manage or self-manage. I died that I might bring light to the dark places of your life. I died that you might have life and life abundantly. He, I am light in life. I am the word of God. I have creative, intelligent design solutions for what you're dealing with. 
He hasn't just spoke one time. He is speaking today. And he wants to speak new things in your life today. This is what God is wanting to do. And he's wanting to take us on this journey. As we, as we go through this summer and looking at John, he's wanting to open up the eyes of our heart that we might see him rightly. Because if we catch on to what he's doing, we will have greater conviction to understand that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing in him, we might have life in his name. And we're not settled with half-hearted life in this room. But God wants to bring fullness of life to every one of us in every situation that we're facing. So I'm gonna ask you, let's stand together right now. And this is the most important part of every service, every sermon, every point, we, every time you open the Bible, every time you talk to God, this is the most important. It's the therefore. Okay, God, we don't wanna just gain information. We wanna say, God, transform us, change us. Like, and some of you, I even feel like this, there's a sense of like nervousness, nervous energy of like, oh, what would happen if I actually let God speak into that thing? Right? Like there's that thing and I'm just, I'm terrified. And, or I, he already kind of has and I really didn't like what he had to say, so I'm gonna pull back a little bit. Right? I'm gonna put him back in the tent in the middle of my living room and I'm just gonna continue to awkwardly walk around him as if he's not there. And what I wanna plead with you is, is a supernatural courage, a, 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 a heavenly grace that you might humble yourself and say, God, what am I doing? Just like Elias, my nine-year-old, what am I doing? I don't have to be afraid anymore. He's good. He's trustworthy. He's for me and not against me. He went to crazy lengths to put on flesh to redeem me. Surely I can trust him with my big questions. Surely I can trust him with my, my problems and my pains and my woes. My prayer for you today is to get real with God and let him meet you in those places. I wanna invite our ministry team forward. If you're in this room, come on up. And I'm gonna pray and then we're just gonna go into a time response. The band's gonna lead us, but my prayer for you is that you don't lead the same person, but that you might see God more accurately for who he is and the way that which he wants to engage with your life, you personally. He wants you to know him, not know about him. He wants you to know him. He wants to draw up intimately with you and he wants to bring his light and his life and he, wanna, he wants to eradicate the darkness and the pains and the struggles of where you're at. This is who Jesus is. This is why we get to celebrate that this is our King and our Lord and our God. He's the best thing that's ever happened and ever will. You do not have to be afraid anymore. So God, I pray that right now. I pray over every person in this room, God, that they would experience a grace to say, God, I wanna trust you that you are who you say, that you, God, you are, the, you are not just Jesus on the cross, but you are the God from the beginning. You are bigger than my mind was giving credit to. God, you are so big and you have every answer. You are that intelligent designer that knows every solution to every problem. You are the way, the truth, the life. You are light in life. To know you is to know God. To know you is to know salvation. To know you is to see your light eradicate the darkness. To know you is to see the death in me come resurrected back to life. So God, we lean into you today. We say, come meet us in those places that we feel afraid. And my prayer for every person is that one person would leave still feeling a fear of the big questions that they're facing. But they would experience the nearness, the knowing of God where you draw up close because that's what you did. Jesus came to earth to draw up close to us that we know that you are with us and you are for us in the journey. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.